people relate to it. They experience it on a daily basis. It's also one of the things that we want to forget about as soon as we're done. Mm -hmm. So those are the challenges that we get to try to accommodate or build around. Hi, I'm Matt McKee, and welcome to Cherry Bomb, the podcast, a series of conversations with people about food, art, and sustainability. Today, I'm speaking on location in Washington State with Cynthia Moscoso. She was an engineer with the Federal Parks Department and was responsible for a very important part of our national parks, the bathroom. This episode is sponsored by my Sweet Blast series of photographs. I created the Sweet Blast series, such as Ready Pop, High Stakes, and Cucageddon, with a mission to start conversations in the room about the bigger topics of food, art, and sustainability. This podcast is the companion piece to that project where I get to share with you some of the discussions that Sweet Blast has inspired. You can browse and purchase images in the Sweet Blast collection at theartofmattmckee.com. Cynthia, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. So how long were you in the parks department? Well, I've had a career of 28 plus years as a public servant, and the majority of those were with the National Park Service. What prompted you to go into engineering? Well, that's actually an interesting story. Go for it. (laughs) I wanted to be an architect, but my dad wanted me to be an engineer. And I said, Dad, I got a proposal for you. I'll apply to one college for you and one for me. And whichever one I get into first, that's where I'll go. I tried to skew the whole thing in my favor, obviously. (laughs) So I applied early decision to that win. And I just did regular application to a small little engineering school over here. And lo and behold, I got into that one first. So (laughs) I had to uphold my end of the bargain. And how many parks have you worked in? I've probably worked in 25 to 30 national park units. And I say units because there's national parks, monuments, national seashores, recreation areas, et cetera, that the National Park Service manages, to be accurate, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Spoken like an engineer. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. On a national scale, what is the goal of the national parks? to protect and preserve the American culture, history, and national wild places, the natural places that are significant. Those natural wild places usually have to have something unique associated with them. You know, they might harbor endangered species or they have a specific landscape that is important somehow to telling the American story. And the preservation is for the public enjoyment and use in perpetuity. But there's, there has to be that balance. If you're truly protecting the natural spaces from human intrusion, you wouldn't let anyone in. Oh, that's a very astute argument. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's an incredible balance that has to be taken into account each and every day. Mm -hmm. You have an audience of, well, the population of the nation that the Park Service wants to invite to see the natural wonders that make up the United States of America. So one of the questions would be, how many visitors end up going to the parks over the course of an average year? Well, of course, there are the ones that most people know The Grand Canyon, for example, millions of people annually visit the Grand Canyon. On the north side, it has a winter season. 
the seasons change on the South Rim, but certainly it's available to be explored and experienced all year long. So a part of your job as the engineer is to both preserve the natural space, but still give people safe tours and then also supply them with basic necessities. I mean, some of these places are really wild and really remote, but you still need to mitigate their impact as they're visiting, I would assume. That's exactly right. People want to use the national parks in different ways. Some people come to be windshield tourists drive around and go to the sites to see, which is fine and awesome. We try to accommodate that with opportunities where you can get there easily. It's accessible to people, people with disabilities. All those aspects of a visit to the national park have to be considered to make it available to the whole entire public. You have to accommodate people not just in their experience of the national park, what they're there to see and learn and experience, but also their creature comforts that need to be taken care of. Drinking water, for example, or a handrail or a guardrail to prevent you from slipping and falling. You know, not to be morbid or anything, but, you know, these are things that really need to be considered because people leave their brains at home when they go on vacation. Yeah, that's one of the things that the vacation is kind of designed to do is to let you unplug and go see something that you've never seen before. But when you're seeing something like Canyonlands, you may not realize how far a 500-foot drop is. As I recall from when we were in Canyonlands, it was only like, you know, 10 feet and there was no railing. It was just this gentle sloping rock that just kept on going down for 500 feet. That was a little disconcerting to me when I did that. That's a great example of an experience that most people would have. Crater Lake is a really good example. It's in the southern part of the state of Oregon. It was my home base for five to eight years. The only way to get to Crater Lake is to drive. It's at the top of a volcano that exploded, right? (laughs) The snow melt has filled in the caldera with water, and it's fantastically beautiful. I mean, it's this incredible blue, and it's the deepest lake in the United States. You can see the value of it on the surface. It's a national park. If you want to taste it, touch it, feel it, you have to walk down a gravel trail on the edge of the caldera. It has switchbacks. It has exposed rock faces. Almost a thousand foot drop from the road and the parking lot down to the water's edge over the course of a mile (laughs) okay now let's just throw in the fact that it's at seven thousand feet of elevation (laughs) and you're climbing a thousand foot drop you know to get down so people forget and they get down there and it's rocky and they might twist an ankle those are the things i need to engineer the road surface or the trail surface And what about the people who get down there and they need a drink of water or they forgot their water? Crater Lake has 40-person boat tour capacity. They helicopter the boats into the lake and then we store them on Wizard Island in a remote area. We have some behind-the-scenes maintenance shed. We also have a science research facility and a research vessel that we keep over there. You were saying that it's behind-the-scenes. Protect the public from seeing what? We don't want to distract from what the public is experiencing. We want to support your engagement in the national park for the purpose of the national park. We don't want you to focus on the toilets. (laughs) When I first met you, you were in Denver. 
you took us to a campground, and one of the things you were talking about was that these toilets at the campground were ones that you had a hand in designing and constructing with the idea I believe they were waterless and they were actually amazingly clean compared to when you think about the porta potties and things like that which are so much fun to go into on a really hot day if you're on an adventure and the call of nature comes upon you but you're staring out at the beautiful landscape you don't want the memory you take away being a giant water pipe coming into a bathroom or the smell of a million people. They call it the throne for a reason. <laughs> yeah, everybody experiences the call of nature, as you put it. I like that. Uh, for clarity, we're just talking about poop right now. People relate to it. They experience it on a daily basis. It's also one of the things that we want to forget about as soon as we're done. Mm-hmm. So those are the challenges that we get to try to accommodate or build around. Mm. So we have to remove waste because human waste is not good for humans. You could get really sick from being around it. And it takes a while to process it and be able to return it to nature in a safe manner. It's not the same as industrial waste or even residential waste just for that very reason. It's a high concentration of people in one location, often with limited water, so low water use. And it changes the way wastewater treatment occurred. These composting toilets, they emphasize using natural biota, bugs, if you will, microbes, to process the waste. But you might not want to think about it, or the average Joe may not think what happens to their Joe. (laughs) When they pee, right? You need to consider the whole entire ecosystem those bugs thrive in. They need a certain temperature. They need a certain food source. They need the appropriate mixture of carbon to other organics. Try not to be too in the weeds here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, we can get a little weedy. Basically, as an engineer for a composting toilet, you're creating a micro micro climate or microcosmos i don't know I'd... a micro ecosystem basically okay. it wouldn't be that way to the microbes that are working on it that's just the way they live that's just home for them yes exactly <laughs> it's kind of like your gut that's where they live composting toilets are not for everywhere it takes a long time for human waste products to break down let's just talk about crater lake again for example because at the bottom of that trail on the water's edge we have restroom facilities there's nowhere to put wastewater when you're done. If you treat it, you flush it down a toilet, where does it go? You can't put it in the lake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no wastewater treatment plant down there. We have composting toilets. They only function when the climate is right. Oh, wow. They really thrive between 95 and 104, maybe max. And it doesn't really get that warm at the top of 7,000 foot elevation at Crater Lake. You know, it's known for 500 inches plus of snow per year. Oh, wow. (laughs) So here we are. We don't really have a good solution. We have composting toilets and we try to like engineer out some of these things. We have solar powered fan for airflow. We have solar collectors to increase the temperature. We paint the facility black, take advantage of the solar gain. So you're actually looking at the environment around it and with the certain criteria you need to meet and then building to try to affect things like painting it black so that it will actually absorb the energy. 
Right. And heat it up to get your 95 to 115. Yeah. All that's well and good. I like that part of engineering. That's fantastic. But I think what really gets me about engineering is trying to understand people and how will people use that facility. Okay. So we have four composting toilets or six or eight, whatever they are in a line. And there's a line of people waiting in mm. desperation. <laughs> Maybe there isn't a line. Which one do they use first? Most people don't go to the first toilet. They'll go to the second one. My compost toilet unit can only handle 50 uses a day, for example. Oh. Because that's all the bugs can handle at that temperature and that water production level. The moisture content of the pile. <laughs> Not to be too disgusting. How do you manage human nature in mm. terms of making those function at their top level? What do you do when they're not functioning or they're overused? You have to get in there and dig it out and fly it out or haul it out because the only way down is on the trail. Somebody has to put a load of that stuff on their back and climb out. Oh, God. Okay. I exaggerate a tiny little bit because the park itself at Crater Lake allows like one tractor with a specially designed trailer unit to drive the trail. Still, the, the rest of the process is kind of a crappy process if, it, if, <laughs> so if, things, are going, if things are going wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so you were talking about engineering for human nature. So you've got, let's say, five of the composting porta-potties down there and You said that they only can be used 50 times in one day. Obviously, the number of composting toilets you have in there is based on how many people you think you're going to have on an average day down there, I would assume, correct? Yeah, that's uh, something that would go into the design of the restroom facility. Okay. Maybe for a different example would be one of the first projects I worked for the National Park Service for was in Alaska. Denali National Park Mm. is in north, (laughs) mid-central Alaska. So Denali is the native name for Mount McKinley. And it's a very remote giant mountain. There's a 50-mile gravel road access to it. For the most part during the summer season when the average Joe goes in there and then we would get on a school bus and there's another visitor center out at Wonderlake. 50 miles on a gravel road. That is not 50 minutes. Mm. That is a three-hour excursion. You get up at oh dark 30. Well, in Alaska in the summer, maybe there's no darkness. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And you get on this bus and you ride for an hour or two and the coffee hit. And Mm. what do you need? A rest stop. And so Teklanika Rest Stop was one of my first design experience. This is not at either of the two visitor centers you just described. This is in the middle of the gravel road. Yes. In the middle of nowhere, it's wilderness. It's along a river. The Teklanika River flows from the mountain past the visitor centers and out to the ocean. So no electricity, no power lines coming in, no phone lines coming in, obviously. No pipes like we would have outside in the street. Just a hole in the ground out in the middle of the woods. (laughs) Well, there's the conundrum. It is true. We ended up designing a hole in the ground, essentially. (laughs) Because it's a short season, the temperatures are cool, there's no power. We would have solar power. It would have been a a possibility, but snow loads and things like that, solar panels are just really cumbersome. You wouldn't really want a huge electrical load to try to manage with a bunch of batteries. Batteries don't work well in cold temperatures. 
And the time was back in the 90s. So battery technology yeah. is fantastic now compared to then. Yeah. We did the big analysis to try to compare different types of toilet facilities, and we ended up with a combination of chemical toilets. So basically, you have a plastic cabana, and we banked them together into a bathroom. We had to consider, are these men-only facilities? Are these unisex facilities? Are they combinations? We banked these toilets together, and all the doors faced out. And then we plumbed them so that... They used chemical toilets, reflushed a certain period of time, and then they went to a big holding tank. And then we pumped it with a big pumper truck and hauled it back to the visitor center on a regular basis. We had a wastewater treatment plant there where we had electricity and water. So we haven't even started to talk about wildlife. Bears, for example, they love plastic. And they like to scratch. Where are all the bears? (laughs) They're in Denali National Park. (laughs) (laughs) Porcupines and bears and wolves. When you have a built environment and you're bringing people in, you need to consider about how long those facilities are going to last. So not just wear and tear or just UV breaking down the plastics. You actually have bears deciding that they want to... Have a scrub (laughs) or chew. (laughs) Gosh. So it's not just the social engineering on the people side, it's also the social engineering on the side of the wildlife and the impact that you're having there. Right. They were there first. <laughs> True. And well, and they're also part of the point of going to see this area is to experience nature, nature red and tooth and claw, or brown, perhaps, and tooth and claw. All right. We were just talking about international users yeah. as well, and... We all are humans, so we all use the restroom, but restrooms throughout the world are different. Mm. Some places are a hole in the floor with footprints on either side, and you have to have good aim. Um, And in Hawaii, for example, at the Arizona Memorial, we would bring busloads of people who came in off the airplane with nowhere else to go. They can't get into their hotels yet. Yeah. And they would bring busloads of 50, 80 people at a time to visit the visitor center. And they all go to the restroom. Mm. They don't necessarily read English either. So they're standing on the toilets. They're breaking the facilities. They don't know how to use a Western-style toilet, necessarily. We ended up creating different types of toilet facilities there to try to direct people. The first ones that you see are X, and the next ones that you see are more like Western-style, and we would use English language to direct an American, for example, to the back. Okay. And if you couldn't read the language... You would see the one you're comfortable with first, and you would funnel into those facilities oh, wow. first. Okay. Interesting. Oh, got to think ahead. <laughs> I, I, that, that is wild. Um, it may be poop to you, but it's my bread and butter. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. One question that I end up asking everybody is, if you could go back and tell yourself one thing at a certain point in your career path, something that would have changed things. What would you have told yourself and when? And probably you have been in the 20s at the beginning of my engineering career with the Park Service. I would have said, enjoy where you're at, because I was always looking ahead. I wanted to go and tour the world. I wanted different experiences. I wasn't looking at what America has or 
what I had here as a U.S. citizen mm. and national parks and all the culture and history and wild nature, I mean, incredible nature park. I didn't realize I was here in our backyard. I've heard about the Greeks and the Romans and I want to go to Italy, but that's what I would tell myself. Embraces so many different climates and geography, geology, all of the above? All of the above. Okay. <laughs> it's true. Okay. Just appreciate that. Mm. Don't look out. Look here. Internally, maybe. What would you like your legacy to be? Certainly not poop. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be known as the woman who composted Crater Lake? <laughs> No. (laughs) I would say legacy as I would view that word. I would hope that just like little things that I've done or conversations like you and I are having about something so ubiquitous as toilets could just inspire one person to think about it differently. What happens if a bear poops in the woods? (laughs) A human, for that matter, you know, there's toilet paper waste. There's the impact on wildlife. Hopefully we can manage that just a little bit better so we can all enjoy in a healthy manner. That would be nice. That would be a great legacy. At the end of the day, Cynthia, what is your comfort food? I don't know that I have a comfort food necessarily. I really enjoy cooking for other people and not into the process, but just to enjoy eating and sharing a meal with someone. I think that's my comfort. I really appreciate you listening to this episode of Cherry Bomb, the podcast, the companion piece to Sweet Blast, which can be found at theartofmattmckee.com. Please remember to share this post on your Facebook, Twitter, and all your social media so your friends can listen in and join in the conversation. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, feel free to drop me a line at matt at mckeephotography.com, on Instagram at mckee underscore photo, and on Twitter at mckeephoto. This episode of Cherry Bomb the Podcast could not have been done without the help of Suzanne Schultz and Canvas Fine Arts, the specialist in coaching for creatives, and editing by Bill Shamlian at Orb Sound. Thanks for listening, and let's start the conversation.